As I said, I chose this text for an Advent Sunday morning sermon because of the artless way in which it teaches the fact of the incarnation of God. God the Son taking to himself a human life, a human nature. By artless, I mean matter-of-fact, simple, without special or unusual emphasis. That is, Paul says the most stupendous thing about Jesus, as if it were something that, of course, everyone knew and everyone understood, as if it were a fact beyond the possibility of doubt. What Paul says about Jesus is, of course, the substance of the Christmas story. The infant boy, born to the Virgin Mary, was a person who already existed. Indeed, a person who had always existed and who then came into the world in order to be born as a human being. He did not begin to be when conceived in his mother's womb or born in Bethlehem, as every other human being begins to be at the moment he is conceived or she. He was eternal God, but now for the first time, he became a true human being. That Paul should begin his great letter to the Romans, his most elaborate summary of the Christian faith with this thought, that he should virtually define the gospel, the good news, as the message that Jesus was God come in human nature, reminds us how fundamental to everything that Christians believe is the incarnation of God the Son. Now, from the outset, let's make sure that we capture the drift of Paul's thought. He says in verse 3 that the gospel concerns God's Son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, taking into account the various uses of that word flesh, the Greek word sarx, both here and elsewhere, Paul is certainly and actually uncontroversially to be taken to mean that Jesus descended from David insofar as his human nature is concerned, insofar as he is a human being. But to speak that way is obviously and emphatically to indicate that his being a human being is not the whole truth about Jesus. There's more to be said about him than that he is a human being descended from David. That's all that can be said about you and about me. We are human beings. Nothing more. But that's not all that can be said about Jesus. Later in Romans, in chapter 9, verse 5, Paul says a very similar thing in a very similar way. He's speaking there of the privileges of the Jews as the chosen people of God. And in concluding a long list of those privileges, he says in a similarly artless way, to them, that is to the Jews, belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. According to his flesh, according to his human nature, according to his humanity, according to his manhood, Jesus is a Jew. He descended from Jews. That's the privilege of the Jews, that the King of kings and Lord of lords was himself a Jew. 
But that's hardly all that can be said about him. He is also God over all. And of course, for Paul to say that Jesus is God amounts to his saying that Jesus is Yahweh, the God who revealed himself in his ancient word, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is to say the true God, the only God, the living God, the creator of heaven and earth. Though Romans 9.5, interestingly, is in fact the only place in his letters where Paul calls Jesus God in so many words, in many other places in his letters, he identifies Jesus with Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the ancient scriptures, the God who made earth and heaven. And of course, the rest of the New Testament does this as well, as you know. I may have told you that in the most recent edition of the Nestle Allent edition of the Greek New Testament, the edition used by all biblical scholarship, the fifth verse of the letter of Jude, the second to the last book of the New Testament, the fifth verse of that short letter now actually reads that Jesus delivered his people from Egypt. It was always the most likely reading, the manuscript evidence being what it is, but only now have the editors of the Greek New Testament admitted that fact and made it the official reading of the letter of Jude. That is, it is their considered judgment and the considered judgment of almost all biblical scholarship that what Jude actually wrote was that Jesus delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt. That's an extraordinary thing to say. And to say it at all, that Jesus delivered Israel at the Exodus, requires that everyone at least admit that what is taught in the New Testament is that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, is in fact the living God. How could Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary during the reign of the Emperor Augustus, lead Israel out of bondage in Egypt 1,400 years earlier? How is it possible that Jesus, the man who walked the roads and the lanes of Galilee and Judea, and suffered and died during the reign of the emperor Tiberius, how could he be the same person that Moses worshipped, who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, and who met Moses on the top of Mount Sinai? Only because this person, who at Christmas was born to Mary as a human baby, had already always existed as God. His human name is Jesus. He wasn't called Jesus in the Old Testament. He was called Yahweh or simply God. But it is the same person which alone explains why Jude, the Lord's brother, could write as he did that his elder brother had delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt at the Exodus. Jesus is the name we know him by now. But so much is the man Jesus the same person as God that his human name, his human nature, can be used in describing what he did before he ever came into the world, before anyone ever knew him by the name Jesus. This is what makes Jesus so utterly unique. This is what makes his life, death, and resurrection so impossibly important. This is what makes faith in Jesus and obedience to Jesus the calling of every human being on the face of the earth. 
the truly astounding thing about Jesus is that he didn't begin to be. When he was conceived in the womb of his mother, he had always been. Only his human nature, only his human life began to be at a certain moment in history, the moment we celebrate at Christmas. One person, one, now with two natures, a divine nature, a human nature. That is the utter mystery of the incarnation of God. You and I have but one nature, a human one. The Son of God now has two. We'll consider that mystery next time, Christmas Sunday morning. But make no mistake, whether you fully appreciate this fact or not, that fact about Jesus, that he is eternal God and that on a moment in history he became also a man is why you're sitting here this morning. It is what makes Christians Christians. It is this fact that makes the birth of Christ, which we celebrate at Christmas, what Alfred Adersheim called the greatest event in the world. Dorothy Sayers, the English novelist and playwright, put it in a more literary way, understanding what it must mean that God himself became a baby boy. She described the birth of Jesus Christ as the only thing that ever really happened. When you understand this, she went on to write, you will understand all prophecies and all history. No other religion, no other philosophy of life makes anything like this astonishing claim. The others have their founders, Confucius or Buddha or Mohammed. They have their teachers, Kant or Marx or Freud or Darwin. But no one claims that any of these is God or was God. Certainly no one claims that any of them was the creator of heaven and earth. That is Christianity's utterly unique and distinctive claim on the attention of humanity. That its founder, God himself, entered the world as a man. We Christians get too easily used to these stupendous assertions. We treat God becoming man as a commonplace of our confession. We sing about it, we confess it in the creed, we hear it preached until it seems to us almost an ordinary thing. Paul here in the opening verses of Romans 1 allows it somehow to trip off his tongue. But he knew that this was the furthest thing from something ordinary. This was news. This was something to shout from the housetops, to ponder at length, to sing from the heart. A visit to earth from heaven. The Creator Himself appearing in the world incognito, willing to endure the most horrific trials if only He might win the salvation of His people from sin and death, deliver them from the cruelest of all masters. We can call this history exhilarating or fascinating or even devastating. We can certainly call it controversial, but if we call it uninteresting, there is something very wrong with us. All human stories of adventure, of sacrificial love, of desperate battle, pale, pale in comparison to this. As has often been pointed out, our entire faith as Christians rests on this foundation. And that, Paul says, is why the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is so crucial. 
it confirmed the truth about Jesus. It authenticated his claim to be God as well as man. It revealed for all time the true meaning of his human life, and it finished the work he had come into the world in order to perform. He came into this world to save us from sin and death and deliver us into eternal life. And his resurrection was at one and the same time the accomplishment, the demonstration, and the illustration of that salvation. Because of his conquest of sin and death as a man in our place, we who trust in him will experience salvation as he did. We will rise from the dead to true and eternal human life. But it's the incarnation that makes all of that possible. God had first to come into the world as a man if he were to accomplish that salvation. God cannot die and so endure punishment for sin. In the same way, he cannot rise from the dead to eternal human life. Only a man could do that. And so it was that God became man. Francis Turretin, the 17th century theologian whose work is usually dry as dust, put this beautifully. The work of redemption could not have been performed except by a God-man associating by incarnation the human nature with the divine in an indissoluble bond. For since to redeem us two things were most especially required, our mediator ought to be God and man to accomplish these things. Man to suffer, God to overcome. For neither could God alone be subject to death, nor could man alone conquer it. Man alone could die for men. God alone could vanquish death. In other words, God didn't save us by becoming a man, but he couldn't have saved us without first having done so. And so it is that the incarnation explains everything else in our faith, leads to everything else in our faith, and so it is therefore that the incarnation likewise answers all the standard objections that people raise to our Christian faith. Take the miracles reported in the four Gospels. Can we who live in the hyper-scientific and technological 21st century actually believe that Jesus walked on water or fed 5,000 people with a few scraps of food or that he gave sight to a, to a man who had been born in blindness or that he rose from the dead? Many people, as we know, many people from the very beginning to the present day have found these accounts simply incredible. They treat them as legends. But of course, as the Gospels make clear, these events were as staggering, as surprising, as difficult to believe to those who witnessed them in the first place as they would be to us today. There's nothing legendary about the Gospel narratives. They don't read like legends. They have all the marks of real history. But all the difficulty associated with the miracles simply disappears if you believe that Jesus Christ was God himself come now as a human being. If Jesus were the God-man, the difficulty 
is no longer the claim that he rose from the dead. The really staggering thing is that he died in the first place. Or second, think of the offense the gospel creates in the minds of so many people in our pluralist and relativist day. How dare the Christians to claim that there is but one way of salvation, that Christianity is the only true faith, that in their core message, all other religions and philosophies of life that leave Jesus Christ out of account are and must be false. What effrontery, people nowadays are very likely to say, to claim that you, you Christians, have the truth about God, a man, and salvation, and that nobody else does. Where do you get off? But if God became man in Jesus Christ so that he could suffer and die to save us from our sins, it's not effrontery, it's common sense that Christ and Christ alone is the answer to the human problem of sin, guilt, death, and estrangement from God. Obviously, if the living God himself entered this world to save sinners, if he did so by dying on the cross for our sins, then surely it should be obvious to everyone that there is not some other way, some other route, some other path to heaven besides trust in this same Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the most prominent of religious pluralists in the modern day, a man by the name of John Hick, admitted this in his book entitled The Metaphor of the Incarnation, or actually The Metaphor of God Incarnate. As the title of the book indicates, Hick was happy to accept the incarnation as a religious idea, a metaphor for God's nearness to human beings. But he is not willing for it to be history. He will have nothing to do with it as history, as something that actually happened. Why? Because if the incarnation were history, Hick says, we would all have to accept that Christianity is alone the truth about salvation, the Christian faith alone the way to find peace with God and eternal life. And Hick, as a modern man, assuredly does not want to believe that. But that is itself powerful evidence of how vast are the implications of the Incarnation, how vast they must be, however unwelcome to modern tastes. Or take a third example. The Bible's teaching of the sinfulness and the guilt of all human beings before a holy God. Modern people especially do not care to hear that they are sinful, that they are unworthy, that they are dead in their trespasses and sins, that they are liable to divine judgment on account of their sin, as the Bible everywhere says that they are. They do not want to believe that they need a salvation that required such desperate expediences on the part of God himself. They think better of themselves than that. But accept the incarnation and all our protestations of our own goodness, all of our opinions that the Bible is too gloomy in its assessment of human nature are revealed to be just so much self-serving, dishonest, self-deceiving hypocrisy. If it took God 
coming into this world, becoming a man, suffering the rejection of his own creatures, eventually to be murdered by them. I say if it took all of this to rid us of our sin and guilt, we must have had a great deal of sin and guilt to remove. If it took the greatest thing that ever happened to deliver us, we must have been in great need of deliverance. Or fourth and finally, consider the all too common objection probably the reason most people really are not interested in becoming Christians, that the Christian faith simply asks too much of its adherents. It's one thing to be asked to perform some minor rituals from time to time or to embrace a not very demanding system of ethics. Human religion asks no more than that. It's one thing to practice one's religion while at the same time living life largely as one finds it easy to do, as one wishes to live it comfortably, largely for oneself, making few changes and fewer still real sacrifices. But Christianity demands the full submission of one's life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It demands obedience to God's searching demands And it demands the willingness to suffer any manner or measure of loss, of sacrifice for the sake of the honor of God. The Christian faith sets before us standards of life and behavior so high that no one can attain to them and no one ever has. But that everyone must nevertheless strive to attain every single day. Christianity requires us to live in that weary world that exists between what we are and what we know very well we ought to be. We're even required to love our enemies. Surely that is asking too much. But what if God really did enter the world as a man to secure our salvation from sin and death? What if he subjected himself to punishing humiliation at the hands of his own creature for our sake? What if our salvation actually cost that much and required that much of God himself? Well then, then the logic of the celebrated missionary C.T. Studd is irresistible. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. The incarnation means, it has to mean, that we can no longer fit our Christianity into the rest of our lives. We have to fit our lives into our Christianity with all that that must mean every day. But of course, how do we know? How do we know that Jesus was God now come in the flesh? Many people saw Jesus during the days of his life on earth. Many were dumbstruck at the things that he did. They were deeply moved by the things that he taught. They were arrested by the goodness of his life. His astonishing example, but very few recognized him as God himself. They had no idea that this same Jesus in his divine nature was in fact the creator of heaven and earth. That idea was utterly beyond them. You can't see God. And there was Jesus in front of them, plain as day. A man. Looked like a man. Talked like a man. Acted like a man. They wouldn't have been able to imagine that such a thing as God becoming a man were even possible. 
They couldn't see the incarnation because the divine nature was hidden behind the human. Only once at the Lord's transfiguration was it revealed and only then to three of the Lord's twelve disciples. And of course in the ages since, a great many people who know what Christians claim about Jesus, that he is both God and man, haven't believed that the incarnation ever happened. They have thought and many times have said, if I'm supposed to believe that, I need some proof. I need to see this incarnation for myself. Celsus, an early Roman critic of the Christian faith, said precisely that. But if he was really so great, he ought, in order to display his divinity, to have disappeared suddenly from the cross. So why should we, or for that matter, Celsus or John Hick, why should anyone believe that Jesus was in fact the living God come in human nature? Well, the first thing we ought to say in answering that question is that everyone, no matter his convictions about fundamental reality, everyone must believe them. John Hick wants to believe that all religions and all philosophies lead to God, but he certainly can't prove that in a laboratory. He has faith that it is so, but no mathematical formula will prove it so. And so with everyone's fundamental convictions about meaning, about the future of human life, about the nature of God and of man. But why do we believe, and so confidently believe in the incarnation of God, that Jesus is both God and man? Why are we so little troubled by the doubts of others or the arguments of a Celsus or a John Hick? Well, there are a great many reasons, though probably few Christians could list most of them off the top of their head. We believe in the Bible's account of the incarnation of God because we believe the Bible. We find in it the hard-edged truth about everything and supremely about God and about ourselves. It confirms its truthfulness to us in a thousand ways and in a way utterly unique reveals in self-authenticating ways reality as we have found it to be. We believe the Incarnation because the account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus authenticates itself to us over the centuries. This is not the story that anybody would have invented then or now, Jew or Gentile. It is wholly unlike anything else we read from that time and place, from that world. We hear the ring of truth in its whole and in all its parts. It has none of the features of invention. It has all the features of serious history. It has convinced our reason. We believe the Incarnation because it explains so much in human history that cannot be otherwise explained. From the rise of the church to the message of the New Testament to the history of Christian experience and on and on. But we believe the Incarnation supremely because we have encountered Jesus ourselves, which in a word would be impossible if he were only a man. He has revealed himself to us as God and man. It's difficult not to believe in the existence of someone you have yourself met and come to know, all the more someone who has wielded such a remarkable 
influence over all of your life. So we don't hesitate to say that we believe the Incarnation. We're not for that reason less sure of its truth, but more. Strong Son of God, immortal love, whom we who cannot see thy face by faith and faith alone embrace, believing where we cannot prove. I often quote to you the sayings of the 19th century Scottish Presbyterian missionary, churchman, and Hebrew professor John Duncan. He combined vast learning with a rare insight and added to that a knack for putting things in a very memorable way. He once remarked concerning Presbyterians, of whom he was one, and you and I are as well. We make far too little of the Incarnation. The early fathers knew much more of the incarnate God. Some of them were oftener at Bethlehem than at Calvary. They had too little of Calvary, but they knew Bethlehem well. They took up the holy babe in their arms. They loved Emmanuel, God with us. We are not too often at the cross, but we are too seldom at the cradle. And we know too little of the word made flesh. Let that not be said of us, not this Advent season. Let's, you and I, together, find ourselves in heart and mind and spirit in Bethlehem, loving Emmanuel, God with us.